Welcome to this week's show, ladies and gentlemen. I am in the redesigned Goat Locker studio this week. Well, it isn't actually redesigned. I moved my home office slant Goat Locker studio into one of the unused spare bedrooms in the house. It offers a bit more privacy and freedom from distractions. And the biggest reason for the move is, well, because Denise said so. I was previously occupying half of the downstairs living room, and she was worried that her moving around on the main floor would be picked up by the microphone while I was recording episodes. She felt that she always had to be quiet and still during the recordings or the interviews, so I wouldn't have to do multiple takes. Of course, I told her not to worry about it, and like I've said so many times on this program, she is as concerned about the quality of this show as I am, sometimes even more so. It took the better part of this past week to get everything moved around and properly arranged to the point it is now, and I'm still not finished yet. In fact, there are some problems with the acoustics in the room that I have to figure out yet. I had to order a bunch of these, a bunch of acoustic tiles or noise reduction tiles for the walls, as well as a cover for the microphone. Sadly, I could not get them properly installed in time for this episode. So please bear with me while I get the new studio up to par. But we get a twofer out of this studio being moved into the quietest part of the house. This move freed up some wall space to hang some of the many puzzles Denise has completed, glued, and framed. Now the downstairs living room can actually be used as a living room again. The second bonus is that there is now another large living room that is opened up to be decorated for Christmas. Between you and me, that's what I believe the real reason is for this move. If any of you know Denise, you know she really loves decorating the house for the Christmas holiday season. In fact, we've already broke out some of the decorations and staged them. They'll be going up this week, at least the interior decorations will. The outside of the house will be decorated when my family and I return from our upcoming vacation. Many of you know this already, but our scheduled pilgrimage to Israel with our church had to be canceled for obvious and not so obvious reasons. I will let you know what the not so obvious reasons are when we kick off the first segment of this week's show. So that is a brief recap of the activities for this past week. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, one of the many lies we are being taught and believe is that our system of government here in the United States of America is one that is called federalism. Heck, even the national government with its capital in Washington, D.C. is called the federal government. We'll break down how that is a lie now. I also want to let the audience know about an upcoming show that I'm really excited about. I got to spend about an hour on the phone with somebody I refer to as the Iron Lady of the Tennessee Senate. You all know who the Iron Lady is, or was, or should know. It refers to Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady of Great Britain. Anyway, Senator Janice Bowling of the Tennessee Senate will be joining the show as we discuss a piece of legislation that she has proposed a couple of times in the past but looks like it will really have a shot in the upcoming regular session of the General Assembly that convenes here in Tennessee this coming January. So with that, let's get on with the program. Welcome to a show where we will discuss how the citizens of this republic must continuously fight to maintain our liberty. And those fights are increasingly against our own government. Some of the episodes on liberty will shine a light on exactly how all levels of government are seeking to erode our constitutionally protected rights. 
We will also discuss the leadership needed to restore our constitutional republic, as well as providing examples of good and bad people in leadership positions in all facets of our society. Additionally, we will discuss the lies the people in positions of power and influence spread every day so they can maintain those same positions. I'm your host, Larry Lynn, retired U.S. Navy veteran, small business owner, and candidate for the Tennessee House of Representatives, and this is the Liberty Leadership and Lies podcast. And we're back. You may have noticed that I do break this show up into segments now. The main driver of that change is that the show is now on TikTok. That platform limits uploads of videos to those that are under 10 minutes in length. By breaking the show up that way, I'm able to share the show on that platform. For now, though, let's get into the lie that our government in the United States of America is one that operates under federalism. The original system of federalism set up under our current Constitution is the system of government that was best designed to protect the liberty of the people along with the liberty and sovereignty of the individual states. In today's discussion, we'll cover the differences between the Articles of Confederation that first established a central or national government after we won our independence from England and before the subsequent writing and ratification of our current constitution. There are some key differences between the two systems of national government that need to be discussed, as well as some common myths that surround the supremacy clause of the constitution. Myths, well, actually not myths, but deliberate misinterpretations that are fully embraced by many in our country today, especially those that want to usher in communism. Don't believe that this ushering in of communism is a recent event. Before I go much further, though, I said that I was going to let you know the not-so-obvious reason for the canceling of my family's pilgrimage to the Holy Land during this week's introduction. Actually, there are a couple of not-so-obvious reasons. The first one being something that every husband or father on the planet should understand. Even if the trip had not been canceled by the tour group, there was absolutely no way I could bring my wife, my daughter, and my son-in-law into a region where their safety was definitely put into jeopardy by savages. The second is, and it ties into the first, the very same subhuman demons that contributed those atrocities in Israel, they want to do the same thing here in the United States. So I have to do what I can to ensure my tribe is protected. Right here at home, our own government and the demons supporting pieces of human garbage, they are enabling the conditions that make it possible for those demons to wreak havoc on our soil. Everybody that listens to this program needs to heighten their situational awareness when they are out in public. If you're able to, ensure you're providing yourselves the best possible method of self-defense you can. Be aware of escape routes in public buildings and establish rally points and communication methods with your loved ones should the unthinkable happen where you live. It is always a good idea to be prepared, but even more so now. It should be quite obvious to everybody capable of critical thinking by now that our government will not protect us. And in fact, 
is increasing the odds of this happening at home with their open border policies and the silence, as well as monetary encouragement our government provides the subhuman demons here and abroad. So stay frosty, everybody. And let's get back to the lie that is federalism. Never forget this. And I will say this as often as it takes for the people to wake up and realize this fact. The federal or so-called federal government in Washington, D.C. is not an equal partner in the agreement between the states that established the federal government. It is a product of that agreement. The states are equal partners directing the federal government, or it's supposed to be, directing the federal government outside of those enumerated, very specific, and very limited powers that the states gave to the national government. Now, again, at least that was how it was intended to be. And you can tell by just looking around, that is not the case anymore. This week, I'll give you an example here in Tennessee of how the corrupt government in Washington, D.C. is destroying or has nearly destroyed federalism. I'll give you three guesses on what the federal government's biggest tool is in their destruction. Here's a clue, though. This tool came into existence, quite fraudulently, on the 3rd of February in 1913. That's an important date in our nation's history to remember, because it signaled the beginning of the steep spiral down the drain of history for our constitutional republic. Another tool that is helping this along can be found in multiple locations around the country. Here's a clue for that. The clue comes in the form of numbers, and this clue is 37243. By the end of the show, I'll let you know what that number represents. Additionally, you will see how federalism played a role, or how I believe it played a role, in the U.S. House of Representatives when they made history by vacating the seat of the Speaker of the House and they ousted Kevin McCarthy. Yep, that's the first time in the history of our republic that that has happened. And after weeks of a non-functioning U.S. House of Representatives, they have finally elected a Speaker of the House. What went unnoticed, though, and was something of a blessing during the weeks without a Speaker, was that the government could not advance any spending bills, and the country didn't come to an end. That whole episode really shows that when government is not in session, our sweat equity isn't threatened with confiscation, and the rich men north of Richmond are not placing the citizens into further debt. You want to know what the real irony is, though, folks? It is that the federal government is the institution working to destroy the system of federalism that was set up under our Constitution. Anyway, we'll discuss that and more during this week's episode. All right, folks, let's talk about the difference between the two types of central government our nation has had since we won our freedom from England after the American Revolution. Right now, we are, well, we're supposed to be, functioning under a form of central government called federalism established by the United States Constitution. The Articles of Confederation was what can be simply called the first constitution on which the United States of America operated. The Articles of Confederation were created on November 15, 1777, and they were ratified in March of 1781 by the Continental Congress. The Articles of Confederation gave a semblance of legitimacy to the Continental Congress, and they gave the go-ahead for the Revolutionary War. 
After the war, though, it was deemed that the document that created a central government, it was too weak to govern the newly independent country. Some of the biggest differences between the two documents were that the Articles of Confederation created a unicameral or one chamber legislative branch of government. The Constitution created a bicameral or two chambers legislative branch of government. Both of those together are called the Congress, the same as the unicameral body under the Articles of Confederation was called the Congress. The bicameral was created to ensure that the states were represented in addition to the individual citizens. The House of Representatives were elected by the people and the members of the Senate or the senators were elected by the state governments. That's an important distinction because the bicameral legislative bodies represent or are supposed to represent the two sovereigns in our republic, the people and the individual states. That is further defined in the numbers of the representatives in Congress. Under the Articles, the states had between two and seven members per state. Under the Constitution, though, the Senate is comprised of two members for each state, and the number of representatives is determined by the population of each state. Keep in mind, though, the Constitution originally designed the election for members of the House of Representatives and for the members of the Senate. It's very distinctly different. Members of the House of Representatives were chosen by popular vote in their individual states. And then the senators, as I previously mentioned, were elected by the state governments themselves to ensure that the individual states' interests were always represented at the federal or central government level. Another key difference was that there was no executive branch of government. While the third branch, the executive branch, was created under the Constitution, creating a stronger system of checks and balances against overreach by any of the three. That system of checks and balances was vital to maintaining the status quo of a limited central government. The biggest role or power the states reserved for themselves in the new central government was through the Senate's advise and consent power. Under the original design of the Constitution, the states had the power to say yes or no to the executive branch appointments. In other words, the states determined who the president selected for roles within the executive branch, such as judges, ambassadors, and cabinet-level appointments. This power was reserved only for the Senate, not the House, which is why senators were chosen not by popular vote within the states, but by the state governments themselves. In the United States of America, federalism is supposed to be the constitutional division of power between the individual states and the central or federal government. From the outset of the Civil War and pushed into overdrive in 1913, the federal government has gone on to assume power and authorities not granted to it in the Constitution. The Articles of Confederation have a few fatal flaws, the chief of which was an absence of an executive branch that could enforce the laws that Congress had passed. It also did not create a court system, which was one of the colony's chief complaints when they declared independence. But by no means does that mean the Constitution is perfect. However, it is the absolute best imperfect means for establishing a central government for the individual 
and the United States of America. That is, if it were to be followed. As I previously stated, though, from the outset of the Civil War all the way up until today, the system of federalism created by the glorious document, it is being eroded by the very system of government it created. And with that, we're going to take a brief break, and I'll be right back. Well, welcome back, folks. I hope the breakdown on the major differences between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution was, was somewhat helpful. Please reach out to me if I was not clear in any of what was discussed in the previous segment. As always, the email address is Larry at Liberty Leadership and Lies.com. Again, that is Larry at Liberty Leadership and Lies.com. For many folks, what I just discussed may seem like ancient history and that there is not much we can do about it today. And yet, there are things being done today that might somehow put the national government back on the constitutional path of federalism, even if it's just a little bit, but every little bit helps. Along those lines, let's discuss the historic move in the House of Representatives that just recently occurred. Do you think that was just a temper tantrum by just a few members of the House of Representatives? Or do you believe, like I do, that what happened was a natural result of some of the members of the U.S. House of Representatives trying to bring back some semblance of constitutional order? As I mentioned in the previous segment about the role the Senate is supposed to play in our federal system of government, what I believe transpired in the motion to vacate the position of the elected Speaker of the House is that a few representatives in that chamber of Congress, the House, subconsciously understand just how far off the rails our government has gone over the past few years. Heck, for the past century, I believe they undertook their actions partly because the Senate has failed to do their duty for more than 100 years now. And the Senate's failure is in large part based upon what the 17th Amendment to the Constitution actually did to the system of federalism in our republic. This may be a bit confusing or a real roundabout way to get to my conclusion, so please hear me out as I give a bit of a background on the checks and balances on the, between the three branches of government, as well as the checks and balances between the bicameral chambers in the Congress. Now, of course, the eight members of Congress or the eight members of the House did not come right out and say what they were doing was because of the breakdown of federalism, and that's probably because they really don't understand how federalism is being destroyed. But those few representatives that precipitated the action to remove the speaker stated one of their many reasons is the House's failure to pass individual appropriation bills, and they were well on their way to passing another middle-of-the-night omnibus funding bill and continuing down the path of government spending beyond its means and placing we the people, the citizens, into more and more debt. These omnibus appropriation bills have been the norm for the past 20 years now. An omnibus appropriation bill is when the House combines the 12 individual appropriation bills into a single gigantic bill each year to keep the government from being shut down. These omnibus bills are the reasons for the explosive growth in spending and the growth in the size and scope of the national government. So they were taking action based upon the houses, not the Senate's, power of the purse. This particular power is called the origination clause, or is sometimes referred to as the revenue clause. It can be found in Article 1, Section 7, Clause 1 of the Constitution. 
The origination clause is that all bills for raising revenue must start in the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, the Senate may propose or concur with amendments, as is the case of most other bills. This particular part of the Constitution, though, it can be traced back to the British parliamentary practice that all money bills must have their first reading and any other initial readings in their Parliament's House of Commons before they are sent to the House of Lords. This practice was intended to ensure that the power of the purse is possessed by the legislative body most responsive to the people. That's the same as the House of Representatives here in the U.S. Congress. This clause was part of the great compromise between the small and large states. The large states were unhappy with the lopsided power of small states in the Senate, and so the origination clause theoretically offsets the unrepresentative nature of the Senate by compensating the large states for the allowing equal voting rights to senators for small states. Now, based upon the two very distinct powers held by the separate chambers of Congress, the founders established a huge check on the growth and reach of the central government. The Senate, by its design structure as a representative of the individual states and through its advice and consent power, could limit executive branch action by controlling who the president appointed to ambassadorships, positions within the judiciary, and the president's cabinet, which was a much smaller group of people under our nation's first president, George Washington. The first four cabinet positions in Washington's administration were the secretaries of Treasury, State, and War, along with the attorney general. Compare that with today, where there are 25 members, 26 when you include the vice president, 15 department heads, and 10 cabinet-level members, all of whom, except those two, require the constitutionally mandated Senate confirmation. The size of the cabinet today that I just described, as compared to the size at the founding of the republic, is definitely indicative of the growth in the size and scope of the federal government. But we'll save that for another day. Suffice it to say, though, the cabinet has only grown to the size it is today because of the breakdown in federalism and the two chambers of the bicameral Congress not performing their constitutional functions. So all of that history lesson on the very specific powers the state gave to each chamber of Congress was done for the primary purpose of limiting the size, scope, and reach of the federal or central government. The House of Representatives has the power of the purse, and they are of the elected representatives in the central government closest and most responsive to the people. That was specifically put into place to ensure the citizens of this country had a direct impact on how much the government spent and how the government raised revenue. On the other side of the equation, the specific power granted to the Senate was put into place because the states had a vested interest in how the central government operated. Because before the 17th Amendment was passed, the state governments selected the senators to serve in the central government. This, with the passage of the 17th Amendment, that allowed for the direct election of senators by the citizens of the state. So the U.S. Senate now is no different than the U.S. House of Representatives. That is definitely, by design, because it specifically eroded the power of the individual states. The power of the purse in the House, it was also weakened by the 16th Amendment. 
I told you to remember the date when the sharp downward spiral of our republic began, February 13, 1913, when the government granted itself unfettered and first access to a source of revenue it had not had before, our sweat equity, our income. I will refer you again to a quote from Alexander Teitler. We've talked about it before, and he said this, quote, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury, unquote. The voters in this case are not the individual citizen, but the people that have the power of the purse, the members of the House of Representatives. So what I'm getting to is this. Those eight members of the House realized, whether consciously or not, that the Senate will not and cannot, because of the 17th Amendment, properly represent the individual state governments and that their fellow House members were voting themselves largesse from the public treasury. There were not any functioning checks and balances on the size, scope, and growth of the federal government. In January of this year, they forced any newly elected speaker of the House to obtain certain provisions that would begin the restoration of the power of the purse to the citizens. And the Speaker broke those agreements. In essence, the destruction of federalism and the fight to somewhat restore it resulted in the historic removal of the Speaker of the House. We can only pray that the newly elected Speaker, a self-professed politician with a biblical worldview, and that's a worldview that was foundational to the creation of this constitutional republic, that this speaker will actually work to restore some semblance of federalism in the central government of the United States of America. And with that, we'll be back for the show's closing segment after a short break, my fellow patriots. And we're back. In this segment, we're going to talk about an example of how the central government works around or erodes the system of federalism in this republic. We will also discuss one of the best ways and maybe the only way to fight back against the central government with the 16th and 17th Amendments remaining in place. There won't be enough time to get into the supremacy clause of the Constitution, and I'm going to save that for another day because it is widely misinterpreted. The same as the necessary and proper clause in the enumerated power section of the Constitution. But this method of restoring checks and balances or restoring federalism is one that the Thomas Jefferson advocated for at the beginning of the Republic. But first, just how does the central government of the Republic circumvent or work around the system of federalism? I mean, do they really need to do anything else since they had the passage of the Income Tax Amendment and the Voters in the House of Representatives granting themselves and the central government first cut of the fruits of our labor? And also where the states no longer able to direct or have an input on the functioning of the central government because the Senate is now nothing more than an extension of the House of Representatives? Do they even need to do any more? Of course they do. Because there is no limit to the amount of power and control tyrants want. Exactly how is this accomplished, though? Well, it is done by the control and distribution of the citizens' sweat equity. We've discussed this many times before on the show. The central government, by the way, 
I think that is how we, the people, need to start referring to the government that is in place at our nation's capital from this point forward. The term federal government only serves to assist the tyrants into maintaining the facade of what they are supposed to be. They have become a mirror of the central planning governments that are common to communist regimes throughout history. So anyway, here is just one example of the central government using the citizens' sweat equity as the carrot and the stick. In late September of this year came this report. Millions of dollars in federal, I mean, central government aid originally earmarked for the state of Tennessee has now been sent to Planned Parenthood instead. The article I read reported that in April of this year, the Department of Health and Human Services, again, another example of the central government exceeding its enumerated powers, well, HHS announced that it was withholding millions in Title X grants because the state would not require physicians to refer patients for abortions that are now illegal in this state. Remember, the central government communists and their enablers, their only form of religion requires the sacrifice of babies on the altar of big daddy government. Tennessee's trigger law, the Human Life Protection Act that went into effect when Roe v. Wade was overturned, is anathema to the central government's viewpoint and cannot be tolerated. Well, now the central government is fighting back against Tennessee using the citizens of Tennessee's own money. Now, the roughly $8 million that would have gone to the state health department is being funneled to Planned Parenthood, whose primary function, ladies and gentlemen, is abortion. From the article comes this, quote, the federal government is denying Tennessee funding that has supported critical maternal and family care for the thousands of Tennesseans for decades, unquote. That was said by Jade Byers, a spokesman for Governor Bill Lee. What is the state's response? I mean, now that the sovereign state of Tennessee did not have a say in the appointment of the secretary of HHS, well, our illustrious trans-publican governor did propose a budget amendment of $7.5 million in recurring funding and an additional $1.8 million in non-recurring funding to make up for the loss of funding, federal funding or central government funding in the current fiscal year. In other words, Here's what he did. Our tax dollars have to make up for the loss of our tax dollars because the central planners in Washington, D.C., punishing the people of the state of Tennessee for having a viewpoint that life begins at conception. Isn't that just wonderful? Governor Lee went on to say, quote, the federal government decided to cut those funds off to Tennessee. And what that did was it left women and children at risk that we wanted to serve, unquote. So he is just playing along with the lie that the former government operating in Washington, D.C. is one that operates under the system of federalism. Further in the article, it was reported that under the central government's plan, $3.9 million will be sent to the Virginia League for Planned Parenthood, which will then funnel the money to Planned Parenthood of Tennessee in northern Mississippi. Another $3.9 million will go to Converge, Inc., a reproductive health organization out of Mississippi that will also direct the money to Planned Parenthood. The communist baby killer 
that serves as the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Tennessee and Northern Mississippi, a one Ashley Coalfield, praised the money's reassignment. Sounds like another good opportunity to repeat the quote from Mr. Teitler. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. Voting themselves largesse from the public treasury to murder the most innocent among us is just as evil as what Hamas is doing to the people of Israel. It's demonic and subhuman. Now, this is just one of many of the quote-unquote federal government examples punishing individual states outside of its constitutional limitations. And this has been going on for more than a century. And just how can we, the people, fight back? Well, by urging our individual states to use the tool built into our system of federalism and into our constitution. That is called nullification. And that brings me back to that number I mentioned that is a clue to an enabler of this erosion of federalism. Do you remember what it was? If not, let me remind you, it was 37243. Now, just what does that five-digit number represent? Well, it is the zip code of the state capitol building here in Tennessee. It is where the General Assembly convenes in the first month of every year to propose and vote on legislation. It is supposed to be the location where the state government stands in the gap between an overreaching central government and the citizens of their state. I bring up nullification again on this episode because the Iron Lady of Tennessee Senate, Mrs. Janice Bowling, will be bringing her bill up again in the upcoming regular session of the General Assembly. The bill she previously submitted, twice I believe, is titled Restoring State Sovereignty Through Nullification Act. This bill establishes processes by which the General Assembly may nullify an unconstitutional federal statute, regulation, agency order, or executive order. And as reported in the Tennessee Conservative News earlier this month, the bill's aim is to codify the Tenth Amendment, protect the sovereignty of the state, and its right to nullify any federal action that is unconstitutional. That's just the beginning, though, folks. The individual states can themselves determine whether or not any law passed by the federal central government is actually constitutional and enforceable within the borders of the state. If successful, Tennessee can lead the rest of the way for the states in this republic to reassert themselves as the sovereign of the central government, and they will work to restore federalism in our republic. We will be discussing that and much more on that future episode of the podcast, specifically the episode on leadership that will be released on the 13th of November. So please tune in that day as Senator Janice Mulling and I have a great discussion. For now, though, we're going to take a quick break before I come back to close out the show with wisdom from God's Word. Well, folks, that is all the time I have for this week's episode. In closing, we have this week's wisdom from God's Word, and today it comes to us from Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. 
There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let us all pray that with a newly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives, who boldly proclaims his biblical worldview, let us pray that this Speaker will take action against those parts of the central government that are lying tongues, those parts that fund the shedding of innocent blood. For far too long now, the citizens of the Republic of the United States of America have suffered under elected officials that bear false witness to their own actions that only function by breathing out lies to the very people that elect them. We can pray that he will take action against the central planners that sow discord among the citizens of this country through using our own tax dollars against us and by operating outside of the guardrails established in our Constitution. The newly elected Speaker of the House can expose the lie that our government operates under the system of federalism. And he can also do his best to rally the true constitutional oath-following members of his caucus to restore federalism to our republic. Maybe, just maybe, he will start leading the charge exemplified by the motto, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God and start to dismantle the machinations of the tyrannical central government. Once again, thank you all for listening this week, and I pray you enjoy the rest of the week and that you take a stand in the arena and get involved in the work necessary to restore our constitutional republic. Until next week, stand in the arena with me. Reveille, it's time to wake up.